Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Hello guys. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Thank you very much for bearing with us last week when it was a solo Mark episode. Mark, I thought it was a really great episode. I listened to you on my lunch breaks at work a couple of days in a row. That's nice to hear. Yeah, it was um, an episode that we've been wanting to do for a long time and I know that we talked about it before it was Shannon Matthews for anybody that doesn't know um we talked about it for a while and we we um it was a shame really because we would have liked to have discussed that uh together wouldn't we but mm. I think you said you would have liked to have discussed um Karen Matthews the slag I think were your exact words when you texted me about it I mean that sounds more like something you would say I'm not gonna lie that is true, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, had some really good feedback so far. So thank you to everybody who listened to that one. Um, quite a sad episode again, but actually it does have a, a happy ending, which is, uh, shall we um, Shall we thank the our latest Patreon supporters? I think that might be a good idea. Yeah, let's move on from complaints. here. Yeah, fucking hell. <laughs> um, so thank you to uh, all of these people who have signed up in the last week. There's loads of you who are absolutely blown away. Um, yeah, so thank you thank so you, much, everybody. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you to Susan Spencer, Jade Rowan, Hetty, Lindsay Derbyshire, Tom Simons, Kay Myers and Anthony Edwards. Um, wow, thank you so much. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, but you don't already do so, if you're able to and you want to, then you can head to patreon.com slash Podcast, And we've got loads of bonus stuff over there. We send a little bit of welcome merchandise. It's all Seeing Red stuff. Uh, we send a bit of that out to you as well when you sign up. So uh, do check it out. Have a little look at it. Um, I just remembered something actually that I can't remember whether you had mentioned it in your episode or whether I saw it online, but Shannon Matthews and her siblings have had lifelong anonymity granted, which I thought was yeah. really, really great news. I can't remember whether that was after your episode or not. Yeah, that came um, afterwards. So that, that was last week. Yeah, r- really good news. Great news. Um, I didn't realise actually that all of her siblings would have also been, of course, uh, put into the care system and hopefully they've found new families. Hopefully they were all together. I don't know if that would have been possible. Um, but yeah, it's great news. So um, hopefully that they have all had a better start to adult life than they would have done uh, had, had they um, remained with Karen, the slag. Yeah. Oh, honestly, hate her. Hate her so much. Yeah, she's but vile. Yeah. Anyway, enough about last week's episode. It's all about me of this course. week. Of course. When isn't it? <laughs> well, I've decided this week to discuss another kind of, in inverted commas, new crime for us. So we did cover this type of crime on a Patreon special. But this is the first time that we're going to cover scams and fraudsters on the main show. Yeah. So the Patreon episode focused on a guy called Fizan Hamid Chowdhury. He was known as Fizzy. I don't know if you really remember the episode. It was quite a while ago. And he was big, uh, well, he is Britain's biggest ever bank transfer fraudster. So in just two and a half years, Fizan and his gang managed to steal £113 million from 750 victims. And at the height of their scams, their team was stealing £2 million a week. God, that's like mind blowing, isn't it? It's crazy. He was the guy who had all like the flash cars and stuff, and I'm sure he was posing with like a tiger in one of his pictures. I remember there was something that. about a tiger. So countless businesses ranging from builders merchants to law firms and property companies were nearly destroyed, and one solicitor's firm lost more than two million pounds, and one person actually killed himself after being scammed. I really hope that our Patreon listeners will indulge me in this, but a lot of you said 
um, during that episode and after that Patreon episode that it was actually really important information that potentially should be shared on the main show. Uh oh. So here we go. I'm going to start the episode with a Bethan's public service announcement. Oh fuck me! We've not had one of these for months. I thought we got away with it. People like these, Mark. You don't. People like it. Okay. Get in touch, guys. Tell us how much you love them. I feel good. Like the fire one, when I gave out some fire safety tips, I, and people said it was really helpful. Yeah, someone got in touch and said it saved their life, didn't they? <laughs> Don't be a dick, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a twat. Just let me have Go this. for it. I'll indulge you. Go on. <laughs> but being serious, I do think it's important because we, we all need to know what to look out for and we could it might help them or maybe one of yeah. your loved ones becoming a victim of a scam. I think it's important you are right yeah absolutely and it's a type of crime that is on the rise because we utilize technology more and more and there have actually also been numerous scams recently relating to covid19 taking advantage of people during the pandemic which is really disgusting but at the end i'm going to talk about a couple of those as well because it's just stuff to be on the lookout for really gone are the days of a nigerian prince who wants to send you his bank details now the fraudsters are so much more sophisticated Social engineering fraud is a new type of crime which has been identified by the international police agency Interpol as one of the world's emerging fraud trends. It's an incredibly lucrative crime and social engineering plays on the fact that whilst there are many technical security defences in place to prevent banks and companies from being hacked directly, it is humans and our emotional responses that are a weak spot and that is what criminals target. We react to a situation based on how we feel and the fraudster would basically use confidence tricks to influence the person to act in a way that if they stopped and thought about it, they wouldn't usually do. So there are different versions of social engineering fraud. So phishing is fraudulently obtaining someone's information through fake emails. Farming is where fraudster installs malicious code on a personal computer or server and smishing uses text messages that contain a URL or phone number for the owner of the phone to call. Um, and vishing is the type is kind of a scam that's a real newest one in a long line of ways that fraudsters try and scam members of the public. And it's trying to get members of the public to hand over their bank details and then they use those to access the person's money or they use those for identity theft. So according to the BBC, there are a few techniques that are used. So information, the criminal might already have your name, your address, your phone number, your bank details, kind of essentially information you expect somebody to have if they're genuine. Um, Phone spoofing is where they make the phone number look like it's coming from somewhere legitimate. So you'll believe that your bank's calling you because it comes up with their name, but it's not the genuine number. Um, holding the line so in some cases the criminals can hold your telephone line so if you hang up to call back the bank you're not actually disconnecting the call and then so you're still talking to the same people and they would almost play a recording wouldn't they where you'd hear a dial tone and all of the options to press it's so sophisticated isn't it it's no wonder people get scammed yeah it's so horrible no one's immune from from being scammed you might think you are but you're not no and this is why whilst we are taking the piss a little bit, I do think it's important to talk about as well because people can be embarrassed that they've fallen victim. And actually, you shouldn't be embarrassed at all. No. Unless you reply to one of those emails where they say, hi, I'm a Nigerian prince, and it literally says dated 1999. Yeah, but my nan my nan might fall victim to that. Oh, okay. Don't even feel embarrassed yeah. if you do that. Yeah. Nanny Mark. <laughs> they make 
um, recordings as well for like background noise. So you, when you ring back or you think you've rung back or you hear them calling you, it does sound like they're in a call center. And again, that just adds to your mind being reassured. Um, and then the final point is the real key point is urgency. You're made to believe that your money is in danger or your finances or your details are in danger. You need to act quickly. They try and panic and frighten you into trusting them. So you'll hand over your information without thinking. And if it was a normal time, you probably wouldn't hand it over. But because they've made you worried, you might. So there's a national campaign called Take Five, where they suggest you think for five minutes. Um, Because if it's genuine, that person's not going to mind waiting. And you could use that time to make a cup of tea or speak to someone that you trust. And yeah, if it's someone genuinely from your bank who's called you, they're not going to mind that. So fraudsters are looking for your personal details, such as your card numbers, your card information, your PIN, your passwords, card reader codes, and they may already have some of the information on you, such as your name, address, phone number, etc. They just tell you we need a little bit more, and they seem really genuine. And a bit like you mentioned with your nan might be someone who'd fall victim, they do tend to target the vulnerable, especially older people. Um. But anyone's at risk and so kind of the case that we're going to cover today will show that even people in certain positions that you would expect not to fall for scams potentially could. So please be aware, be alert, discuss this with someone else and remember that you can always take five minutes to check on something if you're unsure and if someone tells you to keep a transaction secret that should be a major red flag for you as well because why would they genuinely need you to? Yeah. So there you go, Mark. Public service announcement. Oh, phew. No, there's um there's some really good advice. Uh, I complete. I do agree with it. And if if we're seeing like you said at the beginning of um today's episode when you were talking about one of the victims of of the other guy um that we talked about that killed himself, it's um mm-hmm. it's that serious. So um yeah, so exactly. anything we can say to um prevent it happening to to our small army of listeners is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So let's take a quick break before we talk about the case and discuss this week's sponsor. So on to this week's case. I am going to tell you all about Maria Michaela, aka Joanne Peer, aka Zoe Fletcher, aka Mia Cool, aka Anjali Shamama. I'm not sure how you say that. Anjali Sharma? Who knows how many other names she went by as well. And she is one of the UK's, if not the UK's, most prolific female fraudster. That's a bit of a mouthful there. Oh my God. Prolific female fraudster. So between August 2007 and April 2008, Maria was a very busy little scammer. She approached HBOS Bank for mortgage applications for four separate loans to buy eight properties. Now, HBOS as a company were in the press themselves for numerous criminal allegations during the short time the bank was running. Looking online, there have been a series of allegations made about the bank about systemic mortgage fraud, employing known embezzlers, record-keeping failures, and plenty of other issues. Sounds like Mark's day at work. That's rude. Yeah, no, you're not intelligent enough to be an embezzler, are you? No, definitely not. (laughs) I am joking, obviously. But can you imagine a company in a short space of time when it's up and running as a bank having all of these different things just publicly? They, they were a big bank. I think, weren't they allied to RBS, maybe? 
Um, and Halifax. Or, or yeah. Halifax or something like that. But I, I would call them HBOS, but you yep. say HBOS. Hal- but um, I didn't even know they weren't operating well, anymore. Well, I say HBOS as well, but I didn't know it was a... I didn't know if that was just jargon. No, I think it's HBOS is what they're kind of known as. But yeah, they mm. were a massive bank. Yeah. So on Ian Fraser's website, he wrote a blog post back in 2012, which was entitled The Worst Bank in the World, HBOS's Calamitous Seven-Year Life, which is such a damning title. And in this, he literally wrote, at worst, the bank was dangerously out of control and riddled with fraud and alleged criminality, having been pump primed by its management to deliver maximum short-term profits, growth and maximum rewards for executives, irrespective of whether its lending was reckless or whether the bank had a chance of surviving long term or whether its shareholders, creditors, depositors, customers and staff got burned. That's like savage. That is savage. But a lot of the banks were like that. I worked for a bank for eight years, a terrible, terrible bank. And that that was similar there in terms mm-hmm. of, um, you know, short term gains and growth and rewards for executives uh, yeah. at any cost, basically. And during 2003, the money program found that brokers had advised their undercover researchers to lie on applications for self-certified mortgages. The show also uncovered mortgage brokers taking advantage of fast-track processing systems by entering false details. Often this was without the applicant's knowledge. And six people, including former HBOS managers, were sentenced to a combined 47 years in prison for the HBOS Reading fraud, in which they deliberately pushed small firms out of business before stripping their assets for personal gain. And that was between 2003 and 2007. And I think our UK listeners might know this guy, but Noel Edmonds was a victim of that. He was quite a high profile victim. Love Noel Edmonds. Yeah. And his, um, his business went, I think it just went under and he contemplated suicide over this. I remember reading an article. God. Um, so he, I, I think he's been suing them for tens of millions of pounds. Wow. And when I was looking into this, I did think we could do a whole episode just on on that. It's There's so much to it. And when you start looking into it, there's just so much information out there. Um, but yeah, like you said, at the time, it was the kind of industry and the way that it was. And it's not saying it's okay, but a lot of people look the other way for things. And it's all, banking's always had that bit of a reputation as just, it's always been a bit wild and a bit hedonistic in terms of um, what what the bankers kind of get up to because those that were involved in that Reading fraud, uh, I remember reading all sorts of salacious details in the press around mm. what they spent money on and um, yeah, it was just perfect tabloid fodder. Yeah, definitely. So it would make it would make for a great episode for us. Drugs, sex, fraud. I think we might have to do this. Yeah. So anyway, back to Maria Michaela. So that's what I'm going to call her, um, even though she had all these different aliases and people still aren't entirely certain if her name is even really Maria Michaela. But that's what I think is the only one really we can legally discuss her as, I think. So she was 33 years old and she was originally from Mauritius. She applied for the four loans which totaled 10.5 million whilst pretending to be a South African heiress. So she told the bank that she was the heiress to the luxury Sun City Resort in South Africa and this was worth 250 million pounds. And due to false valuations that she provided, the bank believed that when she sold her properties on for a profit, they were going to then recoup the loans that they'd provided. 
So Maria had then bribed a chartered property surveyor and policeman's wife called Mary Jane Rathy. And so Mary Jane was more than happy to overvaluate a string of executive London properties. And this was in return for gifts and money. So she wrote fictitious reports in which she doubled the real value of the properties. And then Maria would apply for the loan and receive a lot more money than what those properties were worth. So the false valuations included a Riverside property in Chelsea, a flat in Belgravia, another at Chester Mews at the back of Buckingham Palace, another property was at the Docklands and another was in Pimlico. So she wasn't exactly choosing small places either. I was in Belgravia uh, a few weeks ago. It is just beautiful. I was in Eaton Square. It's so nice. It's crazy. So one of the properties which was in Chelsea... Mary Jane valued it at six million pounds with a rental value of 270,000 per year. But the property was actually worth 3.5 million and, and rental income of just 180,000 a year. I mean, obviously I'm saying that sarcastically because that's still a huge amount of money, but to go from six million, uh, 3.5 million and then to be falsely saying it's six million, that's not just a small exaggeration. (laughs) So Maria would then apply for these mortgages, get the mortgages and get the loans and then the loan payments would be defaulted on and Maria disappeared. So while she was conning the bank HBOS out of the 10.5 million she turned her attention to RBS and she approached them as Joanne Peer and this time she posed as someone who wanted to refinance assets from her family trust into her own name due to problems with her father. So the bank agreed to make a series of loans to her and this totaled 2.5 million as with HBOS, the loans were defaulted on and most of the money was actually lost as well. So then the next fraud that is known of by Maria was then in 2008 when she changed her alias from Joanne Pierre to Zoe Fletcher. But because they found so many different aliases and different details about people, they don't really know what she was doing alongside all of this. She also had um, some other people that she was running scams with so who knows what else she was getting up to but the next one that is known about was when she approached rbs again and this time she was attempting to fraudulently refinance properties so she's so busy um at rbs she met an employee who recognized her as joanne peer and referred her reappearance to the bank's internal investigation unit and an internal investigation was started And the bank then in turn reported her to the City of London Police. Wow. And I just thought, how lucky that that person had actually spotted her. Or for her, how unlucky. Well, yeah, exactly. And so Maria then scarpered, although by this point, Maria Michaela had defaulted on her mortgage payments and also on the loan payments. And whilst there were appeals made on good old Crime Watch and there were loads of national newspaper appeals, they kind of just believed that she'd left the country but the police during their investigations did then uncover Mary Jane Rathy's fraudulent behaviour so she was charged in 2011 for a number of counts of fraud between May 2007 and June 2009 and a further charge of concealing criminal property so in exchange for these inflated valuations that she'd written up Maria had given Mary Jane roughly £910,000 in cash payments a £143,000 Bentley Continental and a £49,000 Range Rover Sport. They sound like nice cars. I know. And you can 
whilst it is wrong, you can understand why you'd be tempted, can't you? Yeah, 910 grand in cash and two lovely motors as well. It's it's going to be tempting for people in a position of power. Yeah, and she used the money to pay off her and her husband's mortgage um, and they also bought a property. At her trial, though, she denied all the charges. She insisted that she gave honest valuations and she told the court that she thought Maria Michaela was just trying to buy friendship. What, with a million quid? Exactly. No one's friendship is worth worth that much. Exactly. It's just crazy, but I guess that was her defence and she was sticking to it. Yeah. So Mary Jane's then husband, David, was a Metropolitan Police Officer with the Central London Traffic Unit. He was charged with concealing criminal property because the Bentley Continental and the Range Rover Sport were registered in his name. So she's naughty. Like, she's not even just doing this, but she's even registering it in her policeman husband's name. Um, He was cleared at the Old Bailey in June 2011, and then they got divorced. So my assumption from those facts is that he didn't know what she was up to, or at Although, least that was that was the court's take on it, that yeah, there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. Exactly. So even if he had suspicions, potentially he... Because he didn't lose his job, I don't think. So I think it was just a case of they couldn't prove anything or he literally yeah. had no idea. And he didn't know how successful or unsuccessful his wife was in her work. So maybe if she was saying, I can pay a mortgage off because I've done a big deal and earned this money, he, he would just believe that. Exactly. So at Mary Jane's trial, David Durose, the prosecutor, told the court that the surveyor who had worked with Ashdown Lyons provided dishonestly inflated valuations for a customer who then used them to secure mortgages from the Bank of Scotland between May 2007 and June 2009. And it came out at the trial that she had initially refused £100,000, which was supposedly a wedding present from this customer, who is Maria Michaela, um, And she had actually reported this to her managers at the time, but Maria Michaela kept on asking and kept on approaching her. And eventually, I guess the temptation was just too much to ignore. Her claims that she felt this woman, so Maria or Joanne Pierre, was just trying to be nice and buy friendship were scoffed at. The judge at one point said, it is naive in the extreme to expect anyone to believe that you thought they were gifts from a generous woman with no strings attached. And I was like, yeah, exactly. So Mary Jane's barrister, John Lyons, said that the surveyor was on antidepressants knowing that her career was over and he added that her honesty had been worn down by the extraordinary temptation and size of the bribes. And I can understand that as well. I guess she just maybe didn't think far enough ahead to where it could end. Yeah, she wasn't um, thinking with a clear head and she was severely tempted then she was almost vulnerable potentially and and just thought oh fuck it I'll just I'll just take it and I'll get away with it and she was probably being worn down a bit by this person mm-hmm. so yeah and she probably got away with it for so long like for the first couple that she thought oh I can do some more definitely so Mr. Durose had said that this client had obtained more than 10 million pounds worth of loans 9.5 million of which relied on the valuations by Mary Jane Rathy but that this client had left the country and couldn't be found. Now, it didn't even matter that Maria was AWOL because Mary Jane was found guilty and she was convicted of five counts of fraud and concealing criminal property. The judge, Judge Timothy Pontius, told her, it is nothing short of a tragedy for a woman of your intelligence, qualifications 
and many years of exemplary hard work to appear in the dock convicted of crimes of very serious dishonesty. But they reflect an abuse of professional integrity and also a shocking level of greed. It is naive in the extreme to expect anyone to believe that you thought they were gifts from a very wealthy and generous woman with no strings attached. And he warned her that she faced imprisonment of some length when she was sentenced. And indeed, she did. So at her sentencing in July 2011, she received a six-year jail term. What are your thoughts on six years? I thought that was, personally, I think that's quite fair if she did the whole six years. Mm, well, she I doubt she would. I'd say she'd only do three. And mm-hmm. she, she could have got away with a million quid. And for all we know, she might have got away with a bit more that's, that she's been able to squirrel off somewhere. Um, so it seems quite a light sentence. Uh, okay. she, she was in a position of um, responsibility and the courts tend to be a bit harsher then. So I don't know. I've, I've seen former colleagues go to prison uh, for internal fraud uh, for probably a tenth of what she essentially defrauded the banks of and they've gone down for, for similar terms. Oh, OK. That's really interesting because I was thinking, oh, that does actually seem quite fair, but really interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that was potentially after a lot of these things came out that you saw people in that situation or or would it have been before 2011, uh, 12? It would have been actually, before, yeah, been actually. Before. Yeah, it would have been sort of 2008. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I guess it depends on the judge as well then. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Mm. So Maria Michaela was finally arrested in January 2012 after three years on the run and she was arrested by police officers who traced her to a mortgage broker in Blackheath where she'd been working. What? So she hadn't even gone that far and she was still working in mortgages and stuff. That's crazy. With all that money that she would have made, that's stupid. She was living in a flat in London trying to do dodgy mortgages still. Fucking so hell. when they raided her flat, they found a number of different disguises, as well as thousands of documents relating to false identities. So that's why I was kind of saying it's hard to know for sure even the extent of what she did, because she had so many other options as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Her mugshot features her with tears streaming down her face, because apparently when the police caught up to her, her mask of deception slipped as she realised the game was up. She was arrested, and when the case went to trial, she just pleaded guilty. So I guess she wasn't even going to try and deny anything. She pleaded guilty to two counts of fraud by false representation, three counts of conspiracy to defraud, and two charges of conspiracy to money launder. At sentencing at Harrow Crown Court, the judge, Graham Ehring, said, You were a very experienced, highly skilled and exceptionally well-equipped fraudster. These frauds were carefully and professionally planned. They involved the hijacking of other people's identities and extensive use of fraudulently created identity documents. And she appeared in the dock alongside accomplices Guy Steele, Stephen Hunter-Scott and Sabah Humadi, who were involved in other property scams and the scams they were involved in were worth approximately £2 million. Um, it's hard to find out more about what these guys did. So um, Stephen Hunter Scott admitted three counts of conspiracy to defraud, two counts of conspiracy to money launder and possession of false identity documents. And he was jailed for five years. Um, Sabahu Mandi was given a 12 month sentence suspended for two years because of money laundering. And then Guy Steele was jailed for four years for money laundering, attempted robbery after pleading guilty to money laundering and attempting to rob a shop whilst he was on bail. Whoa. Yeah, so lovely little group of this, yeah. this lot. 
Harrow Crown Court was told that Michaela had used a number of fake identities to secure four loans, totaling the £10.5 million from HBOS, with a view to acquiring eight properties, and then the £2.5 million from RBS, and that was to acquire five more homes. And then the court was also told about how she defaulted on those loans and vanished with the money until she was caught and arrested, but that millions of pounds of the stolen money had yet to be recovered. On the 9th of November 2012, she was jailed for nine years and it was advised that she would be deported after she'd served her time. Um, But some investigators believe she's actually a woman called Bruna Louise and she may still have millions of pounds hidden, if not more. So who knows? Yeah. Chief Inspector Andy Fife of City of London Police told the press, we think she is the UK's biggest ever female fraudster. We have not had any female previously commit fraud on this scale before. Maria Michaela created a web of deception that duped banks into handing over vast sums of money and then perpetuated her crimes by assuming new aliases to try and secure more loans. False identities and a corrupt property surveyor were the tools she used to make millions, turning herself into one of the, if not the, most prolific female fraudsters the UK has ever seen. So there you go. A bit of a different case this week, but one I personally found really interesting. I wonder what she spent the money on. I wonder if that went to finance terrorism in another country, for all we know. Yeah, who knows? It doesn't look like it went on a lavish lifestyle if she still had to work and was living in a flat. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. And when you look at the pictures of her, like obviously nobody's going to look glam all the time, but she doesn't look like she's dressing up all glam or having her hair and makeup done and stuff. So, yeah. It reminds me of a lot of Anna Delvey. Have you heard of that? I don't think so. What did she do? She was... um, I can't remember where she was from. She was from Russia originally and then lived in Germany and then moved to America and she kind of invented this new persona and networked brilliantly with high society and ultimately managed to fraudulently obtain loans from banks um, which she used to fund a lifestyle. But there's a really, really good uh, podcast on that on the BBC Sounds. I think it's a six-parter. Um, and I think there's going to be a dramatization coming to Netflix, but it's very similar. Um, so yeah, check it out if you've not already seen that. That, that has very much echoes of this case. That's so interesting. And do let us know if this is the kind of crime that you'd be interested in hearing more about in the future as well. Cause it's not as shocking, perhaps, as some of the crimes where there's a murder involved and, and things like that. But to me, I still find it really interesting. Weirdly, these are always the cases that we have less downloads of. Really? Oh, maybe people don't like it as much. I don't know. Anything where we where we put in the title like the brutal murder of X will always get loads more downloads than if we just put a name or if it's like a fraud. Um so wow. but do do get in touch and let us know what you think because that that's um that's not telling us the whole story. Yeah. So before we finish, I did my kind of mention it at the beginning of the show. I wanted to talk about some of the recent scams doing the rounds as in the UK because of COVID-19 and fraudsters and scammers taking advantage of people. And I thought I'd see if you've heard of any of these, Mark, and see if our listeners have heard of any of them. And hopefully some things that people can watch out for as well. Oh, public service announcement number two Part coming two, right yes. up. Here we go, guys. Is there going to be a so, test at the end? Oh, just fuck off, Mark. <laughs> So on the 24th of March, the UK government sent a text message to the entire nation regarding coronavirus. 
But frustratingly, this encouraged criminals to copy or mimic the message, sending out their own version, which had links for people to click on attached. And if people clicked on the links, they could have their information stolen or malware added to their phones. So maybe don't click any links in text messages you receive. Maybe go onto a separate browser and have a look for something. Um, fake government web pages and SMS messages were also doing the rounds, encouraging users to input their banking and or personal details in, in order to access payments and tax refunds. Um, fake emails and text messages were and are still being sent out to pretend that they are relating to grants or asking for personal information like national insurance numbers to ensure the person receiving the message was going to be able to keep their job which is just preying on people who are vulnerable, isn't it? NHS workers have been targeted with fake texts about goodwill payments from HMRC and another text told people they were going to be fined £250 for leaving the house one more time and gave a link to an 0800 number that they had to call to appeal it. There have been fake small business loans or grant messages sent with links to fake pages where people who had businesses affected by lockdown were encouraged to input their information to check their eligibility. Um, In June in the UK, there were fake emails pretending to be from the NHS Test and Trace Service, which told the recipient they'd been in contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID-19 and they had to click the link to find out who the person was um, and warned that if they failed to do so within 24 hours, legal action might be taken and their benefits would be suspended. I would totally fall victim to that. Not that I would have benefits to be suspended, but... Um, anything like coming through about COVID-19, you'd just panic, wouldn't you? And think, oh God, like, who have I been in contact with and uh, what do I need to do? So you would just click yeah. on it. Right. Sorry, everybody. You may, unless Mark is amazing at editing, have heard the baby in the background screaming her head off. She had a meltdown because a cat wouldn't fuss her. So we're going to finish the episode with her sat here. And I'm very sorry. Sorry, guys. Um, But yeah, I completely agree with you. When it's something like coronavirus and the government, you you would believe that it could be true. (laughs) So I'm going to take over for the last bit. So uh, some criminals have been going door to door claiming to be from the Red Cross, offering to do coronavirus tests and taking donations for bogus COVID-19 charities. And they were particularly focusing on elderly people, so vulnerable people again, and some even posed as NHS workers or local authorities offering to help them, but actually then went on to steal their bank cards under the guise of doing their shopping or collecting their pensions. And some criminals even posed as undercover police officers to find members of the public, with one fraudster even carrying a contactless machine for immediate payment, which is just mental. Fraudsters have been preying on parents too, messaging to say that if a child was entitled to free school meals, the parent could enter their bank details to receive funding while schools were closed. So it's pretty horrendous in terms of what people will do Um, and quite depressing, actually, isn't it? But some things to be um, on guard for, I think, definitely. Definitely. I just think if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Or double check it. Yeah. Who'd have thought I'd become part of a public service announcement? I'm disappointed with myself. <laughs> I did this on purpose. The baby's not even crying. It was just to make you take part. Damn it. <laughs> well, sorry for the bit of a mess at the end there, guys. But thank you very much for listening to the episode and for joining us this week. Yeah, we will see you next week. We might have something more grisly for you. 
Um, so stay tuned. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube in the meantime. And don't forget to check out our show sponsor, Best Fiends. And also, if you are able to and you want to support us through Patreon, uh, then do check us out there. There's loads on offer, and it's patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Yeah, thank you very much if you do, guys. It's amazing. Bye. See you then. Bye. Bye.